Uh, scripture tells us in Colossians 2, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so continue to walk in Him, to walk with Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. And our sermon text today in 1 Timothy 4 reiterates, it reinforces the importance of that principle that we've just sung about. Would you open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy 4? It's on page 933 in the Pew Bible. If you'd like to use that resource, 1 Timothy chapter 4, page 933 in the Pew Bible. We're returning to our study of this New Testament book after a two-week hiatus to begin the new year. Our last couple of sermons have focused on bearing fruit for God. And you might remember Bob Lelio preaching to us last Sunday, exhorting us to bear more in 24. And by God's grace, we will. Uh, The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to help the people of God bear fruit for God. And yet, among all the fruit that is born among God's people, there can be some bad apples. And you might have heard the expression that one apple can spoil what? The whole bunch or the whole barrel. And uh, that is what we read about in 1 Timothy chapter 4 as Paul confronts false teaching in the church. Not for the first time in this letter, but for the second time. He did it in chapter 1. He does it again in chapter 4. That's our text for this morning, 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5. One of the most corrupting influences in the church of Jesus Christ is false teaching. In Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, about four to five years before this letter was written, he warned them that men would arise from their own midst, drawing disciples after themselves and distorting the truth of God in order to gain that following. And Paul says, watch out for them. By the time Paul writes this letter to Timothy, false teachers have already infiltrated the church at Ephesus. In chapter 1, you might remember, Paul tells Timothy, he urges Timothy to confront them, even as Timothy himself goes on to keep teaching the truth of God in Jesus Christ. In verse 5 of that chapter, Paul says, he reminds Timothy, the aim of our charge is what? It's love that issues forth from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And now at the beginning of chapter 4 in 1 Timothy, Paul issues another warning. Here's what he says. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. This is the word of the Lord. A few Sundays ago on Christmas Eve day, we focused on the verse just prior to this chapter, 1 Timothy 3.16. 
And I'll remind you again, as I have on many occasions, that when the New Testament was originally written, there were no chapter or verse breaks. This is just a free-flowing letter from Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit to Timothy. So chapter 3, verse 16, that verse immediately precedes what we just read here at the start of chapter 4. And as we looked at that verse, 1 Timothy 3.16, on Christmas Eve day, we celebrated, as the first century Christians did, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul says in that verse, Great indeed we confess, speaking of, of all true believers, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This may have been an, an early Christian creed or even a hymn sung by the early church. And it's the confession regarding the mystery of godliness. Well, now here at the start of chapter 4, Paul presents to us the mystery of ungodliness. Teachings that are anti-Christ. Paul exposes this mystery of ungodliness that, that arises from diabolical doctrines that draw people away from Christ, the Christ that is celebrated and honored in the previous verse, draws people away from Christ and kills their joy. To put it in a nutshell, false teachers forbid good things God created for our enjoyment. False teachers forbid good things that God created for our enjoyment. And in these first five verses of 1 Timothy 4, Paul drives home this point by a contrast. Paul contrasts bad doctrine with our benevolent God. And it's my prayer that, that this contrast will help us, number one, to recognize false teaching despite its deceptive appearance when it surfaces in our midst. And secondly, that it will cause us to renew our gratitude for God for just how benevolent He truly is. So let's look first at the bad doctrine. Paul begins with a prediction by the Holy Spirit. Right at the outset of verse 1. Now the Spirit, meaning the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. The faith is a term that we've come across before and it refers to uh, the doctrines of the Christian life revealed in Scripture, all of which is a testimony to Jesus Christ. Uh, the creed that Paul just cited, did you catch it? It it honors, it celebrates, it affirms Jesus' deity, his incarnation, his miracles, his teachings, his death and resurrection, his spread of the gospel and his kingdom. These are essential doctrines of the Christian faith. But some who would say that they believe the gospel, that they would hold to these truths, at some point in their life, abandon them. The Holy Spirit says this will clearly happen. And so we as believers in the church should not be surprised when it does. When people who once professed Christ walk away from Christ, they abandon the truth they once professed, it should grieve us. It should sadden us. It should anger us. 
But brothers and sisters, it should not shock us because the Spirit clearly says this will happen. And as we consider the Holy Spirit's prediction, two questions surface, at least they did in my mind. When exactly did the Holy Spirit make this prediction? And secondly, when will it come to pass? Well, the answer to the first question is that the Holy Spirit made this prediction at some point between Jesus' ascension and when Paul wrote this letter. Um, shortly before his death, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24, many will turn away from the faith and many false prophets will appear and deceive many. This was Jesus' prediction. And Jesus went on to say at around that same time, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 14, 25 to 26. So the Holy Spirit, after Jesus ascended back to heaven, at some point reminded the disciples of what Jesus himself had already predicted. Well, when would this prediction be fulfilled? The point Paul is making is that it already is being fulfilled. The false teachers described in verse 3, the actions they are taking, the prohibitions they are giving, appear in the present tense. So when the text says that the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, the point is that those later times are already here. It refers to the Christian era, the time from Jesus' ascension until the time of Jesus' return, the second advent. So when someone asks you, are we living in the last days, the last times? The answer is always yes. The answer is always yes. And the emphasis of Scripture is, be ready. Be ready. Because you don't know what hour our Lord is going to return. And instead of trying to figure out exactly when Jesus will return, the emphasis of Scripture is always to focus on being faithful until He returns. So that you are ready at any moment. I hope you're listening careful today because this message is for us. The church at Ephesus was a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, and they are warned about apostasy that would come up in their midst. The danger of apostasy is real. It's every bit as real today as it was back in the first century. The Spirit of God clearly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith. And if that's what's happening in the first century, how much more now in our day? That word depart is the Greek word aphistemi, and it sometimes refers to a geographical departure from, from literally physically moving from one location to another location. You did that when you came to church this morning. You left your home or some other location to come here at 675 Holt Road in Webster to gather for church. And many times in, uh, that word aphistemi is used to refer from departing from one place geographically to another part. We see this in the gospel and Acts. I won't give you those references, but they're there. But here in 1 Timothy 4.1, it refers to a spiritual departure. 
a spiritual departure from the truth of Christ to the teachings of demons. That's what the Holy Spirit says. The Spirit clearly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by, de by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. I'm amazed at the Lord's timing. There's a couple of pastors that almost every Sunday will just send me, and I'm sure several other pastors, an encouraging text as we get ready to preach the Word. Sometimes um, it's mostly a word of encouragement. Sometimes it can be an admonition or a challenge. And this very morning, as I was ready to come to church, this guy had no idea the text I was preaching on, sent me this quote from John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan said this, Whatever contradicts the Word of God should be instantly resisted as diabolical. Whatever contradicts the word of god should be instantly resisted as diabolical demonic doctrine the teachings of demons is almost as old as eden remember what happened in the garden of eden the serpent questioned the clarity of god's word when he beguiled eve did god really say remember that he questioned the clarity of God's word, and then he directly attacked the authority of God's word. You shall not surely die. God said, in the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Satan said, you will not surely die. He directly attacked the authority of God's word after questioning the credibility of God's word. Jesus called Satan a liar and the father of lies. Some things are just burned in my memory. And from my earliest years, my dad used to tell us children, you are never more like the devil than when you lie. You are never more like the devil than when you lie because he is the father of lies. He is a liar and the father of lies. In another one of his letters, Paul wrote to believers, 2 Corinthians eleven three. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Oh, friends, Paul is writing here to believers in a local church just like ours. Not many things made Paul afraid, but this was one of them. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts, your thoughts would be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And that's Paul's concern here in 1 Timothy 4. It's the concern of all the other apostles as well. In his first epistle, John warned believers, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, by the grace of God, Webster Bible Church for over 60 years has been preaching the true gospel has been teaching God's Word. And that's a great thing. That's a great blessing. But there's an inherent danger in that. And that danger is going on in some of your heads right now. You're hearing these warnings about false teaching, about apostasy, about um, error creeping into the church, and you're saying, I know, Pastor Matt, I know, that's real. But Pastor Matt, I know the gospel. I've been walking with God for many years. I am not going to be duped by false doctrine. 
This warning may be applicable to other people that are not as well grounded as I am, but I can assure you I am not going to be duped by false teaching. And yet scripture says to you and to me, beware, watch out. Because while some theology is so bad, it can be spotted a mile away. Most false doctrines contain just enough truth to resist detection. They come to us in subtle forms. Phil Riken warns, quote, If Satan's favorite strategy is deception, it follows that the church is in real danger of being fooled by false doctrine, end quote. That is, if we, are, if we allow ourselves to be led astray from our pure and simple devotion to Christ. And I don't say this to scare you. I say this to prepare you. As we continue through this text, I hope that you'll see just how deceptive and seductive false doctrine can be and how it may have even begun to seep into your own life because it has to do initially with our thoughts, our perceptions of God and how that affects our lifestyles. So let's move on to look at the propagators of false doctrine. We read about this in verse 2. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So demonic teachings are transmitted. You know, a, a demon's not going to knock on your door and says, hey, I'm a demon. Let me tell you some false doctrine." It is propagated through the insincerity of liars, human liars, whose consciences are seared. That word insincerity, when it says the insincerity of liars, is the Greek word hypocrisy, from which we get our word hypocrisy. It's a term that is used in the Greek theater, and it literally means stage playing. It refers to play acting, to actors. And that's why it's so deceptive. False teachers are really good actors. They're really good at making themselves to appear more godly than they really are in order to gain a following. They are so deceptive, in fact, that at some point they start believing their own lies. I was doing some reading even early this morning about... Um, how in Hollywood a lot of actors uh, practice what's called method acting, where they, to get ready for a movie, will literally spend months, sometimes years, getting into character. And sometimes it's become so dangerous in an actor's life, he actually becomes one with the character, which may get him an Oscar, but also starts messing with his head and with his heart and with his life. And that's what happens here. They start believing their own lives. The Bible says that their consciences are seared. That word seared is the Greek word kateriazo, from which we get our word cauterize. I know this procedure well. It literally means to burn with a hot iron. Uh, as many of you know, I, I um, have uh, struggled with skin cancer over the years. Thankfully, just one case of melanoma, but a lot of lesser forms of skin cancer but I regularly have to go into the dermatologist and it's quite frequent where they got to take a chunk out of my skin, either for a biopsy or to remove a, some sort of a cancerous tissue. 
And almost every time they do that, he gets out this little electric needle that heats up through an electrical current and he cauterizes the area of my flesh that's been caused by that, that surgical wound. And uh, what happens is the nerves can be so, become so deadened that and sometimes it becomes desensitized to pain. You really can't feel any sensation where you were cauterized. And that's what is described here in a spiritual sense. These men's consciences have been cauterized by sin. They have become desensitized to the pricking power of God's word. Their consciences are no longer pricked when they sin with impunity against God and other people. One commentator uses a different analogy to deliver the same point, comparing their actions or their conscience to an alarm clock. He says the first time the person commits a particular sin, alarms go off all over his conscience. But then he commits the same sin a second time, and a third time, and a fourth time. And what happens is, the next times, it's not so alarming. And so this person finds a way to to put what they would call, you know, the, the snooze button on their conscience so they can disarm that alarm more readily so it doesn't bother them. And eventually, that person unplugs the alarm clock altogether and sleeps unto death, spiritual death. It's a powerful analogy. Another commentator writes, unless Christians are careful, this self-destructive pattern can be repeated anywhere. And false teachers are a prime example of this destructive pattern that can occur in any one of our lives. The late pastor, teacher, commentator, theologian John Stott wrote, and I quote, The grim sequence of events in the career of the false teachers has now been revealed. First, they turned a deaf ear to their conscience until it became cauterized. Next, they felt no scruple in becoming hypocritical liars. Thirdly, they thus exposed themselves to the influence of deceiving spirits. And finally, they led their listeners to abandon the faith. It is a perilous downward path from the deaf ear and the cauterized conscience to the deliberate lie the deception of demons, and the ruination of other people. And it begins when we tamper with our conscience. End quote. So let me ask you, beloved, have you become desensitized to sin by pressing the snooze button on your conscience? Something that at one time convicted you greatly now isn't so alarming anymore. You find yourself committing that sin more frequently and unfeelingly. That is a classic sign that you are allowing your conscience to become cauterized by sin. And it's the first step to spiritual ruin, according to this passage. The first step. So if that describes you, the solution is to repent and to reset your alarm system by calibrating your conscience with the Word of God. The Apostle Paul wrote in Acts 24, I always strive to have a clear conscience with God and men. 
Let's make this our commitment as well. I always strive to have a clear conscience before God and men. Well, let's look at the prohibitions of lying leaders. Verse 3, what do these guys do? Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Wait, what? The doctrine of demons? This is the doctrine of demons Paul is denouncing? Avoid marriage and meat? Stay single? And restrict your diet? These are doctrines of demons, teachings from hell? What? I would have thought that diabolical teaching would have consisted of denying the deity of Christ, the incarnation, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And according to this passage, the answer is, well, no, not necessarily. In this case, the false teacher simply taught that to be saved, or at least to improve your standing with God, to be a truly spiritual person, avoid marriage and meet. Stay single and restrict your diet. Now I want to show you how, like all satanic deceptions, these teachings contained a kernel of truth. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul himself lists many benefits to serving God as a single person. God has called some people to singleness. That's not a bad thing. In some cases, it can be a very good thing. Many benefits in serving God as a single person. Likewise, fasting is an effective accompaniment to prayer. But to see these things as essential to salvation or even if they're not essential to salvation, to improve your standing with God, to make you more holy in God's sight, is to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is to twist the truth of God into a lie. This kind of thinking was rooted in the dualism of Greek philosophy and what later became full-blown Gnosticism, which taught that Physical matter is evil and only the spiritual is good. And when it came to a person, they would say, your spiritual self, the inner you, is all that matters, not your body. Boy, you see this in our day, don't we? Your inner self, your spiritual self, is all that matters, not your physical body. Physical appetites lead only to sin, And they're a barrier to true spirituality. Don't let your body stand in the way of what you are meant to be from the inside. And in this case, they said, holiness is attained through abstinence. If you want to improve your standing with God, abstain from marriage and abstain from meat. Abstain from marriage, and while you can't give up eating altogether, at least abstain from meat. Give up the good stuff. You want to be holy, guys? No bacon. Now these restrictions to our ears, in some sense, may sound silly. They may sound nonsensical to us. But we might say, but but to call them teachings of demons seems a little bit over the top. Telling someone to stay single to serve the Lord or to restrict certain foods. 
But therein lies the deception. Because it's more than a restriction. It is a diabolical misrepresentation of God Himself. And one that Paul is quick to correct even before he gets through the end of verse 3. So now we're turning from the bad doctrine to the benevolent God. That's the contrast. Verses 3 to 5. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So so the prohibitions being propagated by these lying leaders are immediately met by Paul's rebuttal. God is the one who created marriage. God is the one who created them male and female. God is the one who created food. God is the one who gave people the desire for sex and the desire for food. And if God created it, then it's good. And it's meant to be enjoyed with gratitude to the Creator who blessed us with these gifts. Like many of you, I started reading the Bible through again at the beginning of this new year. And so I have very recently reread the wonderful account of creation. And I highlighted in my Bible and I underlined certain recurring phrases like, and God said, and God said, and God said. And so it was, and so it was, and so it was. And God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Then it says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was what? It was very good. Do you know what Eden means? I was reminded of this this past week by a pastoral colleague whose daughter is named Eden. It means delight. So when we think of the Garden of Eden, where God placed Adam and Eve, think that he placed them in the Garden of Eden a delight, where they could enjoy every tree, everything in God's creation with one exception, right? God commanded the man, you can eat from any tree in the garden, every tree in the garden, except from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. Because the day you eat from that tree, you're dead. In his incredibly good book, The Whole Christ. Sinclair Ferguson explains the significance of God's command by offering an expanded paraphrase of his directives to Adam and Eve. Here's what he says, as if it's God talking to them. I am giving you everything in this garden. Go and enjoy yourselves, but before you head off, I want you to know that I have given you all of this because I love you. I want you to grow and develop in your understanding and knowledge and in your love for me. And that's why I put that tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil there. I so want you to be blessed that I am commanding you to eat and enjoy the fruit of all these trees. It's a command. Enjoy them. But I have another command. What I want you to do is one simple thing. 
don't eat the fruit of that one tree. I am not asking you to do that because the tree is ugly. Actually, it is just as attractive as all the other trees. I don't create ugly, ever. You won't be able to look at the fruit and think, hmm, that must taste terrible. No, it is a fine-looking tree. So it's simple. Trust me, obey me, and love me because of who I am and because you are enjoying what I have given to you. Trust me, obey me, and you will grow. End quote. Satan's shrewd track, a tactic in tempting Eve, Sinclair writes, was to divert her gaze from the superabundant plenty God had commanded them to enjoy and get her to fixate on that one negative command and cast God's character into suspicion. Ferguson reminds us, one small object near the eye can make all larger objects invisible. I actually tested that. I put my little finger in front of my eye. I'm like, yeah. Just the tip of my finger is so small, but it blocks out everything if I put it right in front of my eye. He says, one small object near the eye can make all larger objects invisible. Now it was the sight of the forbidden tree blocking Eve's vision of a garden abounding in trees. Now she could literally not see the forest for the tree. And then he goes on to write, and I hope you listen carefully. It is this, a failure to see the generosity of God and his wise and loving plans for our lives that lies at the root of legalism and drives it. When this distortion of God's character is complete, we inevitably mistrust him. We lose sight of his love and grace, and we see him essentially as a forbidding God. You think there are people out in the world today that see God as a forbidding God? Are there things in our lives today that would convey to the world around us that our God is a forbidding God? That he's a miserly God? That he's a restrictive God? That he is a stingy God? Well, Satan's messengers continue to portray God this way. By twisting God's truth into a lie, either by divorcing God's real commands and prohibitions, divorcing them from God's benevolent character, or by adding prohibitions that aren't even in Scripture. They add to God's words in order to distort His word. So catch it. They either present us and get us to fixate on one part of God's word in such a way that it divorces God's revealed truth from His benevolent, gracious, loving character, or they actually add to God's truth. As Jesus said, they replace the commandments of God with the traditions of men in order to turn God's truth into a lie. False teachers forbid good things God created for our enjoyment. Now the antidote to the teachings of demons, to false teachings that present God as a forbidding God, is not and anything goes kind of Christianity. Paul does not say everything is good. Enjoy what you want. 
what does he say? Everything created by God is good. Go back to Genesis and look at what God created. It's all good. It's all very good. But as you also know from Genesis, creation is followed by the fall, which tragically brought evil into the world and spoiled God's good creation. John Stott, in his commentary, gives one example of how this plays out. It's certainly not the only example, but it's, it's one good example and a primary example in our day. And the example he gives are professing Christians that practice homosexuality. And they say, I'm gay because God made me that way, so I intend to enjoy my homosexuality. God wants me to enjoy this kind of a lifestyle. But no, what God created was male and female. And Scripture makes it very clear that the intended consequence of creating male and female was a heterosexual marriage that would honor God. And Scripture continues to bear this out in both the Old and the New Testament. And we read in somewhat of a culminating way in Hebrews 13.4 here in the New Covenant Christian era, let marriage be honored by all and the bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. And that's a good reminder to say that it's not an anything goes kind of Christianity. It is calibrating our conscience to the Word of God, which is the Word of a good, gracious, benevolent, loving God. Everything created by God is good and is intended for our enjoyment. So the appropriate response is to enjoy these things God has given us and to give thanks to Him as our Creator. Gratitude is so important that Paul mentions it here two times in just three verses. Believers in Christ should be the most grateful people of all because we not only enjoy the gifts, we know and love and enjoy the giver, don't we? We have a personal relationship with our Creator through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we enjoy our food, we celebrate Jesus as the bread of life. As the fount of every blessing who satisfies our spiritual hunger and quenches our spiritual thirst. We enjoy marriage, knowing that it portrays the ultimate, unbreakable union between God and His people, Jesus and His bride, the church. A love that is unbreakable and will last forever. For nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, do we not know how good and benevolent and gracious and kind and merciful God is? We know this, don't we? Because we know that God did not withhold His only Son from us. God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. And Paul says there in Romans 8, how then will God not also with him graciously give us all things? If he didn't withhold his only son from us, you think God is going to withhold anything else that's good for us? Oh, he graciously gives us all things and these things are made holy, Paul says, by the word of God in prayer. By the word of God spoken from the very days of creation. And by prayer as we give thanks to God. 
And that has roots far back into the Old Covenant, where from the earliest days men called upon the Lord. And men gave thanks to God. When I say men, I mean women as well. Humanity. Those who feared, who worshipped the one true God, who honored Him as their Creator, would thank God before their meals. Something that we continue to do today. I was listening to a pastor the other day. He was saying that at times when, when they were growing up, he was enjoying the meal so much. He said, we prayed before the meal. And sometimes I would be say, right in the midst of the meal, man, isn't this good? He says, before you eat and you give thanks, you're not sure maybe exactly how it's going to taste. He says, but when I'm in the middle of the meal, sometimes I say to my kids, man, isn't this meal great? Let's thank God again. And specifically thank him for how good this tastes and this tastes and how they have an abundance of food and things like that. So the idea is that we pray and we give thanks not only before our meal, but as believers, we with our mind and many times with our lips from the heart, we give thanks to God. It ought to be countless times every day because he constantly loads us with benefits every day of our lives. And we as Christians know this better than anyone else which is why we give thanks to God before our meals, why we ought to thank Him countless other times throughout the day as we enjoy His innumerable blessings with the greatest gift being God Himself. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, help us to reflect on our goodness while also thinking about where we stand with You. We know that in Christ you have poured out blessings both temporally and eternally on us through him. Um, I pray that he would be honored, that you would be honored, Father. Your spirit would be honored as we sing this next song and prepare our hearts and minds to partake of the bread and cup around your table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.